Welcome to Behind the Lectern. Since 2006, your host, Jeff Klein, has been working with speakers at all levels, from beginners to Toastmasters International Award winners, from experts to National Speaker Association Hall of Famers. In each episode, Jeff introduces you to some of these speakers as you learn about their speaker journey, how they got started, where they came from, where they're going, and more. Take the lessons they have learned on their way to help you with your own path to make speaking work for you. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Behind the Lectern. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest, Janine Boland, today. And if I pronounce that wrong, Janine, you'll tell me, right? Right. You're on it. So Janine Boland has always loved figuring out how things work. A scientist from the beginning, she craved to dig into the mysteries of life and understand why things are the way they are. After working in the pharmaceutical industry for 15 years, she dropped out of corporate America to homeschool her four children. She has always had a side business in her life and shares with other business owners and creatives how to manage a well-lived life full of children, family, friends, and clients while not suffering from burnout. Her 12 books, 15 online courses, four podcast programs, and syndicated radio show all express her desire to share her systems and routines with the rest of us. So thank you for that. With that, let's welcome Janine. And right now, we don't have anybody in our live studio audience, but you never know if we will, and we'll let them contribute to the show if they venture in through our clubhouse or through our Zoom. Hi there. Hi there. Good morning. Great to talk to you, my friend. Thanks. I'm so glad I'm here. Oh, that's pretty funny. I should. That sounds like Chevy Chase. I'm so glad I'm here. I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) I love Chevy Chase. That's wonderful. Well, so this, unlike other podcasts, we are all about the speaker's journey. So, Janine, I would like to know how you got into speaking as part of what you do. Well, the speaking part of it was due to the fact I was so highly introverted. And a lot of people who meet me think there is no way that you're introverted. And I'm like, I assure you, what you see presented before you is the type of person that goes out. I give everything I've got as I'm speaking. And then I go hide for an hour and recharge my batteries after I'm done. Because I'm one of those speakers that, you know, you have a lot of speakers that'll stay after and they'll have the big mass of people come up to them. I actually have a crew of people that will let me hide, get off stage, go sit for 15 minutes, kind of recoup. And then I'll present myself again to people because I am quite introverted. And I do well looking like I'm an extrovert. But It all started with uh, Toastmasters. I was in a position in the pharmaceutical industry where it was my job to constantly give every week updates and reports on the information we're doing. It was during the AIDS crisis. We were working with anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 samples a week that we're running through. We were delivering information to the federal government. And so it was like a nightmare for me with 2020. I was like, I totally understood where people were with trying to get the numbers correct and all that. So my job was back before the digital age uh, doing that sort of work. And so I had to get very efficient at being able to give high quantity, high quality content delivered in executive bullet points in short periods of time. And because I was not at all trained in that way, that was not the way my brain worked. That wasn't even my personality, dude. That wasn't, you know, Yeah. (laughs) I had to, I joined a Toastmasters group. And I highly recommend for people, if you have a Toastmasters group, invaluable to me because they force you to talk and get better and better. And you're in a friendly environment. No judgment. Super smart, Janine. Good for you. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of Toastmasters. I'm the other side. I've never needed it because I am. uh, Yeah, I can't ever shut up. Uh, (laughs) I was the kid in elementary school who went from the the corner to the hall to the principal's office because I wouldn't stop talking. But I, 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 I have, yeah, I have good <laughs> friends who, who are similar to you. And, and I understand the you give all your energy to the audience mm-hmm. and folks like me, we're, we're we have it has its upsides and downsides, too. We get our energy from the audience, which means if I speak in the evening, I'm not getting to sleep at a decent hour at all because I'm all ramped up from the audience. But. They all have their ups and downs, their positives and negatives. But, and I'm sure that 
I'm thinking that was even before things like PowerPoint and stuff like that. Right. We were doing subroutine programming with Quick Basic and we were using RS-232 cables to do interconnecting on our, on our packages. And people like me were actually building code to build the automation and robotics that we're currently on site. So a lot of the robots now that I can make for 250 to $500 were costing almost a million dollars and had a lot more cords running around. Now that we have Bluetooth and Mindstorms with Lego and all that, it's yeah. fascinating. I love this era. I don't think anyone should have to work as hard as we did back in the day. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And so the, a lot of those, the speaking that you did was probably telephone conference calls, right? Actually, no, we had a special room in corporate where we had special negotiations with certain corporations and companies so that we had live feeds. And so what now is called the Zoom meeting rooms where you can go into certain rooms with flat screens and everything. We actually had to drive across town to the telecommunications group special building to deliver our international messages. And now I can do it from the comfort of my home office. So it's nice to see you, Jeff. (laughs) We can just get people to stop doing it from the car. (laughs) I always worry about my people when they are in their car. If they're parked, no problem. But I really worry about them if they're driving. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I remember though we knew which buildings were the telecom centers because they had all the antennas. Correct, right? You could always yeah. figure it out. It was just finding parking. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and here in, in the Dallas market, I was in the movie business during that time period, and there were a couple of places where you could do a live, live remote event by going and running, you know, running a room in the conference center. And Correct. It was... The, uh, they were next door to the film studio, so they were like Correct. part of the communications complex. And, right, you uh, are. So, yeah, and that's why I'm so grateful we are where we are. I would not oh, wish yeah. those sorts of things on people ever again. Yeah, so when a lot of people complain, I'm like, oh, but I do so love where I am right now. <laughs> I mean, you know, I remember having to wait 45 minutes for dinner because we didn't have microwaves yet. <laughs> TV dinners took 45 minutes. Right? Because they were frozen <laughs> like a brick. Yeah. All, I mean, well, some things that we, we get a little impatient. Unfortunately, our patience kind of changed with the, uh, some of the technology and we, some, we, some of us need to wor- work on that, right? Because people still take as long as they take to do things, right? So you were speaking for, the pharmaceutical company and when you went out on your own or when when you went home rather to to be a mom and run the house what uh you stopped speaking for a while that sounds like yeah you would think that but what ended up happening was because i was a analytical biochemist that walked away from that because basically i couldn't do my job anymore because I was working with viruses and very dangerous compounds, radiation, radioactivity. Uh, They didn't want a pregnant woman running around the lab uh, doing that. that. So (laughs) imagine that. So they had an issue with that. So when I did decide to drop out of corporate America, I ended up speaking instead to community groups. I became the homeschooling liaison because it wasn't really well known. And we were in Colorado. uh, Sorry, we were in California at the time. And because of that, we had a superintendent of schools who was trying to declare that homeschooling was illegal. And so there was quite, so I found myself wrapped up in kind of a lot of that drama of what are you talking about? There is no legal thing. And so speaking was always a part of what I was doing because I was either doing persuasive speaking, but in most of the cases, I was transferring large quantities of data in executive summary points. So I got very good at taking anywhere from 1500 to $3,000, uh, 3000 page results or reports and distilling them down into a 15 minute presentation without PowerPoints and helping people understand what we wanted to have happen. So, so you were, yeah. had, you had to go to the legislature and lobby. Actually, uh, no, didn't have to do that part. I let people who were actually in that arena. My okay. job was to help my re- representative at the time or at the county level be a liaison. So I was a volunteer position. It wasn't like I was right. Paid. No. So you were <laughs> teaching the politicians and yes, and, yes. and their staff. Which, yes. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Trying That's to help them out. Yeah. Because I don't think a lot of people understand that 
if you really don't like what is happening in your local region, going to your state representative, they're hungry for people who can oh, yeah. bring quality content, quality data, and talk in a way that helps them look smart because they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their constituents, right? Yeah, for sure. I've, yeah. And I, I had an occasion uh, a long time ago, well, where I drove, so I drove straight to my state representative's office after something happened and, and wound up sitting with a staffer and filling him in on what was going on. And yeah, that was very interesting. Of course, uh, separately from that, I had, I had lobbied for the film industry in Austin. And, and I, the word they use is testified, but I, I did a data dump for them on how much the film industry had impacted the economy of Texas. And because they kept that was back in the day. Well, I guess probably still happening now where they every every session, they somebody would come along and say, oh, why are we giving these people a tax cut? You know, why are we exempting these people from sales tax? Well, because they're bringing in a billion dollars to the economy. <laughs> right. Follow <So>, the money. <laughs> but we had to show them that they didn't look on their own. We had to keep showing them every two years. <laughs> but. but so yeah, and, and, and I've actually been fortunate enough to do a, a lobby run in Washington where we went to representatives' offices, or we were assigned one representative and went to their office after a, a conference. Anyway, so speaking, wound up actually becoming a pundit in those terms a little bit, an expert on your issues for homeschooling. And of course, California very different than a lot of other states because in California, you have initiatives and you can the people can bring something up for everybody to vote on if they get enough signatures. Right. No, you don't necessarily have that in every state. And so, and then we were moving quite a bit because my husband at the time had quite a bit of work that caused us to move. So I ended up homeschooling in five different states and learned very quickly how to establish a homeschool in each of those states at that time. It's totally different now. And thank heavens. Thank heavens. I, I think, like I said, nobody should have to work as hard as we did. And I want people to have a smoother way of being able to educate their children in a way that they know is most beneficial for their family. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, homeschool is very different now than it was. Mm-hmm. Thank what, heavens. 10, I'm very grateful. Yeah, yeah. It's And now they have homeschool sports leagues and mm-hmm. interscholastic sports for homeschoolers, which is kind of a little uh, sounds like an oxymoron, but but I understand what's going on, right? Because that was the yep. big knock. The big knock on homeschool was that kids didn't get socialized, which is hysterical. Yeah. We called it the S question in the homeschooling environment. Okay. The S question uh, that was always the first question, and I always found that interesting as a scientist. No one ever said, "But what about their education?" No one ever said that to me. You're taking them home to homeschool. What about their education? Nobody said that. Everybody goes, what about socialization? As if we would keep them locked up in a barred room and not letting them out in any way. My children actually communicate in such a way with people that they're shocked and surprised by the level of communication. I've noticed that as a college professor because I was the math and science mom for a lot of the mom schools that we were running. You would find other people in your homeschooling network who maybe had an emphasis that you didn't. And so we were always getting together with these mom schools and I would help their stu- their students with their math and science. And then these wonderful moms that were liberal arts majors, thank the heavens, would help my children with Shakespeare and learning how to appreciate English literature or Chinese literature, or poetry. Thank heavens yeah. that we have, we had such diversity, <clears throat> but I was known as the, the math and science mom. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, and yeah. of course, once upon a time, homeschooling, was it did mean that for some of those parents that didn't want their kids exposed to other people, got, but now it's a lot different. Yeah, it, it's, it's very different. So, but as far as the speaking journey goes, and for those of your listeners who are thinking about it or contemplating it, there really is no excuse except fear. And fear, every speaker will let you know. One of my favorite documentaries I ever saw was the last show that Johnny Carson did. And for those who are not of that era, I barely made that era. But Johnny Carson was on the air live back in the day when all manner of chaos could happen and usually did. Uh, 
he was on it for decades and they had an episode where he was getting ready to go do a skit and he was getting ready to walk out from behind his gold curtain that he always had. And you hear him mumbling his first couple of lines. Now, this guy's pro. This guy has been on TV longer than most of us have been alive, right? And yet he was still mumbling his first sentence. And so, you know, as a speaker, you just learn how to channel that fear into energy so that when you get up on stage, you can talk. And I know a lot of people make a big deal about the statistics of that people would rather die. People didn't fear death as much as public speaking. And just realize that no one makes an exception on that. Being a vulnerable and standing up on stage and looking at an audience of whether it's eight people or 80 or 800, I've had the privilege of being able to be in all those sorts of environments, whether it was just 10 or 100 or 1,000. One of the things I have come to understand is, believe it or not, everybody that's sitting in that chair wants you to succeed. So even though you're looking at 800 sets of eyeballs staring back at you, and you're feeling very vulnerable. Nobody sitting in the chairs wants you to be unsuccessful. Everybody wants you to be successful. So that is one of the mantras, if you will, that I use, yeah. that everybody that's in that chair, whether they came to see me or not, whether I'm the opener, whether I'm the MC, or maybe I'm a keynote speaker, or maybe I'm one of 60 speakers, nobody's sitting in that chair wanting me to perform badly. They really want my A game. And so all my job is, is to make sure I bring it. Yeah, well, and the other thing that goes with that is the audience doesn't know if you made a mistake in what you were planning to do, right? Nobody right. But you knows about that. And so that's another thing where if you get don't get hung up on something that didn't go exactly as planned because it's never all going to go exactly as planned. It's kind yeah. of like a budget. You're go always going to have unexpected expenses. And they're going to pop yeah. out of nowhere. And so you can be flexible or not, but it won't be life altering. I have, I have watched speakers drop mics. I have had situations where I walked up and literally all of the speaking paraphernalia they put on you for live events literally just dropped off my jacket, hit the floor. They're shutting down the reverb throughout the audience. And I'm like, just a minute. And I did a little dance while the, <laughs> the guy comes up, everybody just got everybody laughing like, oh, well. Yeah. And then I had another talk where we had 800 people in the room and the fire alarms went off. We had to evacuate the uh, wow. entire room in the middle of my talk. And then while we all came back in, I was getting ready to launch where I started. I had left off. The fire alarm would go off intermittently at various times as the fire department was trying to shut down the various sections. So it's one of those situations that every speaker who has ever spoken for longer that, you know, who speaks consistently on a regular basis, every single one of them has lovely stories. And that's one of my favorite things at a conference is to go back behind stage and chat with people and say, so yeah. tell me some of your stories because we've all got them. Right? Everybody's got the horror stories, you bet. Well, and, and I use some of those stories in, when I, in my talk about overcoming the fear of speaking. Because it's like, here are some things that, here are some awful things that happen to people. Now you, not, you, not anything that happens to you could not be worse than, than what happened to these folks. Mm -hmm. And yes. the world didn't end and they still walked off the stage to applause. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes here's a quip to use if you fall down. I mean, you're not going to fall down, but now you have a tool. So you know not to be afraid of falling down. So that one was, I learned at a National Speakers Association event. The uh, the speaker fell, tripped and fell, stayed on the floor, and just went, uh, could we have a few words from the floor? <laughs> Delightful. Okay. Yeah. My favorite is I was walking out on stage, and my pump, I did not have stilettos on. I usually have very thick heels because I'm aware of stairs and all that. However, something happened, and my shoe chose not to follow me to the podium. So I ended up, <laughs> so I ended up le leaving my other shoe on the stage and just kept walking to the podium. And I waited until it really started frustrating a few people because I started off in my talk and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, 
are you worried? You're wondering what I did with the shoes? You know, I did a callback like they do in comedy. Yeah. And that's something that's a lot of fun for speakers. Mm. This is very good training for me is watch your comedians. Watch those YouTube events where they mess up the outtakes. Watch how they use humor and understand how a comedian makes jokes. And so I checked out books from the library on comedy because a lot of people say I am funny. But it's one of those things that I really didn't know the language or how to go about doing comedy. So I would watch everything that Jerry Seinfeld did. I would watch all of these stand-ups that started coming through, Robin Williams and the like. And I realized that there was a kind of crazy zaniness to it. But when you really started looking at them, there was structure. They have a structure with what they're doing. And as soon as I learned that structure for me, for my personality, no matter what happens to me on stage, I'll figure it out. I'll be able to make a joke about it, get my people to laugh because all that nervousness, they feel mm-hmm. nervous for you. There's what do that? What do I do? Can I jump yeah. up on stage and help her? Do I stay in my seat? Are we recording? Is there a camera somewhere I got to watch out for? There's yeah. a lot of people that want to help you, huh? Well, yeah. And I, I actually took a class on stand up. I did a stand up comedy workshop and got to go up for five minutes at the improv as the graduation. So that was, right. that was oh. kind of fun. I put that nice. on the YouTube channel. It's uh, Yeah, it's out there for the world to see. And we've done improv for speakers through Speaker Co-op. Mm-hmm. We bring in you know, an improv expert and we play some games. And there's nothing better than learning what happens when you forget what you're going to say. To have the tools in your brain to keep you from just completely dying up there, learning some of that stuff. And, yeah, you know, learn how to write a joke. and different schools of comedy where some people are the observation and some people are the telling the stories and all that good stuff. Amazing. So now we're, we're at home school and you've become a amateur politician and lobbyist. Now only amateur because they're not paying you. Otherwise that's the only difference, right? Between professional. And I'm looking at 12 books and when did you start writing the books? Is that throughout the whole time on different things or? Right. Um, uh, writing the book in 2005, there was a massive sea change in the publishing industry at the turn of the century. And that massive sea change was what they called vanity publishers. So you were so vain. Remember how they used to talk oh, about yeah. this? You were so vain that you would publish your own book. What they didn't understand, there were people like me who I couldn't find textbooks for my students. I was now a college professor. I was an adjunct professor in southern Utah at that time. And I was working as the science and math person for non-majors. I was helping build out a program and I could not find information. And And I noticed the grades dropping with my students and come to find out it was because they were not budgeting their funds. And by the time they got to the end of the semester, they had run out of money. And the reason why the grades started dropping was because of lack of nutrition. They were fainting in classes. I had one person that... uh was telling me they had lived on ramen for the last two months. They didn't have the ability to phone home and get extra funds, that kind of thing. So I started noticing when grades start dropping toward the end of a semester, what ended up happening is I went to the president of the college and I said, something has to be done. And that was my first book, Money. It's not just for rich people, where I was teaching them the 60-40 principle, how to go about budgeting. And then that became a required course for every freshman class that came through. It was learning how to budget your funds at the time. So it was wow. a small school. You know, we only had 144 students. And so that was the first book I published. And it also ended up being my master's thesis. I ended up publishing it because I got tired of running to, do you remember these Kinkos? We'd run to Kinkos to photocopy all of your stuff. And I I was having to charge people $15 because they wanted my master's thesis. Now, who ever heard of that? It's ridiculous, right? Yeah. yeah. That was the first book. And I ended up writing six books on money. And then as I had more and more students, and then about 2015, I started an online university because I wanted to teach, but I wanted all my students that wanted to be there. I didn't want to have to deal with grades, and I didn't want to have to do anything with administration. So I was like, I'm going to run my own online university. And so I currently have 15 online courses people are welcome to take, and I've had over 441 students while I continued educating my children. and running my businesses. So I just keep cranking out books about one a year can crank out a book in about a year. And as long as my students have questions and they can't find a book on it, 
that's when I write it. <laughs> and what's how do we access your online university? Uh, you can go to the eight gates.com. So T H E, then the number eight, and then G A T S.com. So that's the, the code for it. There you'll see all my books. You'll see some of the courses that I have. But you're also welcome to email me at Janine at the eight gates.com and say, what courses are you offering? Because some are consistent. They're evergreen. They're always mm. there. The ones that honestly, to be quite frank, the ones I got tired of teaching over and over live, I went ahead and recorded them. But yeah. I do have live courses that I do still teach, such as how to write a book a year and all that. Now, there are other programs that get you to write your book faster. But I focus on people who have maybe a full-time job, a part-time job, and they still want to write a book, or they have medical conditions or something where they can't push, like getting a book out in 30 days is just physically not possible for them. So that's why yeah. I help people write a book a year. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm not done. I know we just, you know, got web stuff and email stuff, but I'm not done with you yet. We're okay. still <laughs> We've only gotten to, I think, probably the middle of your speaking journey, it seems like, because we've gotten to where, where you were, uh, you'd overcome being introvert and spoken to people because you had to for work. And then all of a sudden okay. you had a, a cause for your kids that you had to speak on as yeah. well. And I want to know when you started speaking, enjoyed speaking. That would be 2017. Oh, I'm sorry. I got to back up a little bit. In 1987, I was a part of radio. Radio was very easy for me as an introvert because I didn't sure. have to look at anybody's face and all that. So I started yeah. speaking in radio in 1987. But then after that, there were several times where I was doing stuff. But in 2000 and trying to make sure I get this correct, six or seven, right when YouTube really kicked butt in 2006, I think is when it really started coming out and people started switching their MySpace accounts. <laughs> but another thing happened about that time. It was called Blog Talk Radio. And we were called audio bloggers. Yeah. And so I was one of the pioneering podcasters, as we call ourselves now. We were the audio bloggers of 2009, 2007, uh, 2006 through 2009. I had a radio station on the uh, blog talk radio. And then in 2017, I started officially being a full-time uh, podcaster at that time. And so since that time, we had four podcasts. Uh, my shows got syndicated in October of 20. 21. And so we now have four podcasts and the Janine Boland Show is a radio station. And we now have access to over 87 radio stations that can pull content uh, from the exchange that we are a part of. We're officially on two radio stations that produce our content every every week. So that's when it really kicked off pretty big time was about 2017 when I started being, quote, quote, a podcaster instead of an audio blogger. Okay. So what, what did you do in radio way back in the, back in the eighties? Oh, I was, uh, helping the high school at that time and I was on KDFN, KOEAFN, serving the current river valley with information and entertainment. <laughs> nice. So you never forget that stuff, yeah, you know, it I never know leaves that. your brain. <laughs> so you did like news and interstitials Correct. and all that kind of things on yes, a music station. Right. Right. I'd go in and I'd do a lot of the recording for, you know, I'd sit and talk for two hours and do the recording. And then other people actually had the programs, but I was the voice in between all the programs. Got it. Got it. Yeah. The, the, you were the station ID and all that other mm -hmm. stuff. The, the uh, what was it? FCC regulations and all that. All stuff. of that. And this is a tune of the Emergency Broadcasting Service. For the next 30 seconds, you will hear. Swear <laughs> <laughs> an actual emergency. <laughs> Yes. Run into your cellar and hide. Uh, <laughs> Precisely. Now, yep. how did you, I'm just curious about how you got into blog talk radio, just because it was, and I remember people going, I want to do this. And I remember, okay, great. Where's the money? Right. So I got into blog talk radio because of my blog. Uh, my written blog. So I had a blog called Smart Sense and it was based on all the money stuff and it was for my students and all that. And what was interesting was that was when blogging was kind of big and I had Telogs Corporation as well as uh, Fiber One uh, bars. <laughs> 
reach out to me and say, hey, would can we put your products on your blog? And I went, no, because that's for my students, blah, blah, blah. But I would be happy to do some sort of radio promotion for you because I was thinking in terms of radio. Yeah, right? right. And they were like, oh, do you have a <laughs> podcast or do you they called it? Do you have an audio blog? Yeah. And I said, why? Yes, I do. And I was thinking, I guess I better go make one. Yeah, right. I will. Yes, I do. Give me an hour. I'll figure it out. And uh, anyway, so I had sponsors. And the reason why that show no longer is on the air is because after two years, they moved on to other people. But I had a fabulous time talking about powerful women. That was the name of the show. It's very lame now. Now you'd be like, well, why would I even do that? But we had hundreds of thousands of subscribers at the time because audio content was exceptionally rare. So, and I think people forget about that. We didn't have yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I'm in Dallas where I witnessed, not really knowing what I was witnessing, but I, I witnessed what Cuban mm-hmm. you know, right. is uh, going from. The first thing he started doing was simulcasting sports events on the internet. Right. And I was the listener of the sports station that he partnered with mm-hmm. here in Dallas, exactly. 570 KLIF. And his name never came up. We just knew mm-hmm. that every week now you could get on your, you could turn your computer on to listen to the, to the game and to the show and the game instead of having to rely on your AM radio <laughs> connection. And, mm-hmm. and that turned into, that turned into broadcast.com which then Yahoo bought and made him a billionaire and all that other rest. The rest was now, you know, the rest of the story, right? Right. Exactly. So So, yeah, yeah. it's just how, it's just how the technology was moving and shaking out at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and then with that, then right, I think right along the same time as bandwidth got better, people started vlogging. Right. Video blog, right. Mm -hmm. They called it vlogging, which another one of those, space age terms right Uh, it it was i remember how exciting it all was i remember how as these platforms would come out you would have these young kids that didn't have a lot to do and they'd sit there in in front of their computers and they had the time the inclination and the desire to actually sit there and spend 18 hours figuring out this platform and seeing how far they could push the envelope and what they could do and that sort of thing so I remember all of that, and I used to encourage my students, look, this is a wonderful place for you to be. But yet then they also had their parents who were terrified of the public persona uh, that you'd yeah. have. It was, so you had to walk this like tightrope of uh, this balance beam of, okay, look, this is the way you do it. And so that's why all the funny nicknames and you wouldn't ever use your real name and all that fun stuff started happening. And so for me, it was just a what authors had been doing for millennia. You know, we, a lot of us wrote under pen names and stuff. So to me, it was, I would turn to the parents and I'd say, they're not going to use their real name and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it was, uh, it it was a challenge. It it, it took time. It took time to move people in that direction to allow their students to be that creative and express themselves in that way. So you started teaching people how to blog or how to do audio blogs? Or have right. Radio or a, a vlog, the vlogging, like yeah. uh, uh, modern times, they call them now booktubers, right? Uh, they were kids that would do re- book reviews. And now you have all of these book companies that will support these booktubers because they do fair uh, reviews. And so as an author, I would encourage the kids to do well vlogging, but with the yeah. books that they were reading. Yeah. Because we were a university that encouraged outside reading as well as the required reading. And we also were a college that focused on whole book learning like the University of Chicago does. And so because of that focus, it was just totally appropriate. I'm like, if you don't, if you don't want to hand in a written report, that's fine. I want to vlog and I want it to answer these questions. And so that's how a lot of the YouTubers got started, at least in my college classes. Wow. <laughs> that was, I would see that for a lot of kids, that would have been the right answer. And then, of course, for other kids, it would have been, can I just still write it? <laughs> right. And, and the answer was yes. But in some yeah. format, you will express yourself. Yes. Interesting. And now my 11-year-old nephew did a video report the other day uh-huh. on, uh, I, not even, I, I'm forgetting what, some country, and it was like Yugoslavia. It wasn't Yugoslavia, but it was 
some small country in Europe, they had to do a report and it was a video report. And it was them, they talked about the company and then they had little animations about the exports and the, the GDP and all these. And it's like, wow. I mean, just stuff. And now again, you could do all that on your phone now, uh, edit video. <laughs> I remember the days with the, uh-huh. I, I helped carry some of those big cameras around. <laughs> yeah. Lots of stories there too. I won't, uh, <laughs> okay. So. You started having fun as a radio host. Did people, yes. as a, as the radio host, did people ask you to come speak at their events or did you solicit that yourself? What, what happened next? Well, I was a very engaged person because I had, I was writing books. I was a adjunct professor and I still had four children at home that I was homeschooling. So that kept me pretty engaged. So I didn't seek it out, but people would seek me out for uh, MC work. And so they wanted me to be the MC because I could do transitions well. And I didn't have any difficulty just talking off the cuff to people about what was going on. And uh, one of the things that they said is you have some interviewers who, Jeff, you've been a part of this long enough, you know, there are some interviewers or MCs that totally distance themselves from what is happening on the stage. Like they come in, they do their bit, they do not engage. And you know, this is a speaker. And you're like, oh, my gosh, we're on our own. So the speakers kind of huddle together to to make the event work. And there were a lot of professionals who did not know how to emcee, even though they were on broadcast media. And event planners started realizing this. So I was known for being highly engaging because I would chat with all the speakers before they went on. I would talk to them about what are they doing? What's a funny thing somebody may not know about you? What's not in your bio? Stuff like that that is very natural for you and I now. But at the time, that was very unusual. And so a lot of event planners wanted me there because I was engaging the audience, the speakers. Everybody felt like they were at a comfortable event. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, I sat down with another speaker. and We started putting together an MC slash facilitator training course Mm -hmm. because it is very different. And you have to pay attention to what's going on. And and even if you're not the MC, I really encourage speakers to go to and when if they're booked in an event to go to the whole event and i mean now i'm not talking about an all-day summit where there's you know speakers every 30 minutes on on zoom i'm talking about you're speaking at a two or three day conference go for the whole conference see the other sit sit through the other speakers so you're in the same place as the audience when you get up to speak you can even do callbacks as you know the comedy right do callbacks to other speakers and how, how things went with their talks. And if, you know, if somebody, if something really funny happened the day before you speak and you refer to it in your talk, you're so much closer to that audience than if you just come in, do your thing and leave. And they feel it, right? They, they can, the audience can tell that. I've been to enough conferences that I can tell you when people are just there to schlep their books and then leave. You know, I can, I can totally know when that is going on. And one of the things I enjoyed doing was speaking toward the end of the conference, like this is the third day, blah, 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 because it was easy to bring up a lot of humor. So much had happened in that period of time. There was so many transformations happening and transitions. It was very easy to make a funny talk. Like a lot of times, there were sometimes I wasn't even able to really get to all five points that I was trying to make because we really only had time for three because there was a lot that needed to be reviewed. And because I'm so much of a college professor, I was like, okay, let us sum up. What is the one thing you're going to take? And then I would just rattle off everybody that I had seen before my thing. And I also also just loved being able to talk about sleeper hits. And we didn't expect this big guy, but here was Dr. So-and-so. What a sleeper hit with his book, blah, blah, blah. And we would talk about people who were exceptional speakers that had never been a part of that conference before. And my hope was so that they would get invited back because I really liked them and I wanted to learn more about them. So it was very self-serving. But at the same time, it really (laughs) helped the event planner know who was it that was a shining star because they couldn't get to all the events, all the the talks. Well, and, you know, just to be fully clear, and, and you didn't, I know you didn't mean it this way, but you don't have, you can be fully focused on selling your stuff and attend the whole conference because you'll sell more. Oh, yes. I was referring to yeah, a situation. Yeah. 
Yeah, very clearly in my mind where we were at a four day event back in the day when they used to have those live in person. And we were on day three. We had never seen this person. He showed up five minutes late, showed up, had a book, had two books. His son stood around and they wrapped it up and then they left and they weren't even staying at the hotel. And so that was where I really got a bad taste in my mouth of, I will make sure that I take care of my event planners and my other speakers and my audience, that we will not have these kind of people that we're aware of. And of course, this this individual was not invited back, but it's just one of those things where it's like, this is a community we're building in this four days, and we have a lot to learn from each other. And I learned so much from the audience that is attending as I do the speakers that I'm there for not only my own education, but also to help in whatever I can, in whatever way I can to the audience and the other speakers. So yes, I always make that assumption. We're building a community. If you're going to pop in, just sell your stuff and leave, that's not really what most event planners are hopeful for. Right. Well, and when I meet somebody at an event and we become close over three or four days, I always joke that we went to camp together. (laughs) It's so true though, isn't it? I mean, come on. It was a little segment of time that you carved out so that you could learn and uh, share what you know. Yeah, Absolutely. And and under the model that so many of our speaker co-op members are where we're speaking to get business, that extra day, that extra two days is so worth the time. People have questioned, well, what have I got to do all this other stuff? I'm so busy. Look, if you are invested in getting business, through speaking and doing going to conferences like this, you need to fully invest. You need to get in, jump in with both feet, spend the time. It will be worth it. I have received so much assistance free of charge and have given so much assistance free of charge at those events when I knew a person was really interested in what I had to offer, but was not going to be able to afford my fee at this moment because they were just starting but they were willing learners. That is a whole different frame. And then what's fun is when they did financially get their feet under them, I was one of the first people they would reach out to because we had treated them well. So yeah, it was fabulous. Yeah, yeah. It worked out quite quite well. So yeah, it's totally appropriate for you to go and sell your stuff. We're a capitalistic society. Most of us are what we call authorpreneurs, meaning we are business people who are authors and speakers. So yeah, I don't want anybody to ever think I don't want you to make money off of what you're doing. Yeah, I well, and I just want yeah. The, the Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, you bet. And the people who are all about themselves are not; they don't succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, they're. I mean, they're. You you could talk about you know successful people, and and they may be after they get successful, they may have a different attitude, but most of those people. I've done what they've done because they have a desire and a drive to help people. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Yeah. It takes a lot to pry you out of your, out of your house or out of your comfort zone to be sitting there in front of people, especially people like me. I teasingly say, well, after 2020, it sure is going to take very special events before you pry me out of my home office. Why? Because I love what I'm doing and I'm able to reach just as many people. So I've had a few event planners reach out and I was just like, I'm sorry, I, I just can't make that happen. Just can't, I can't do that anymore in that regard. And then I have other event planners where they have put in the work and the time and, and it's like, oh yeah, sure. I'd be glad to show up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's nice to be able to be choosy. Yes. And, and that's important. It's really, it's a benchmark for some of us in our business when we can say no. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't have to say yes to everything like I used to. And there are still a lot of yeses, but frequently it's, is there any way I can do this virtually? Or may I record it earlier? Or can we put it up on your website or something like that? I'm always trying to find alternative ways because just of the sheer volume of work that I'm involved in right now, and I'm loving every minute of it. Now, I want other people to get to that point in their business where they bounce out of bed every day and they're ready to hit the, hit the tracks. Now, Am I that way every day? No, I, I've had a few low days in February. I will let you know. There was, there was a couple of days in the third week where I was struggling. But at the same time, 90% of the time, I am thrilled with what I'm doing. So where are the kids now? 
Uh, let's see. So I just sent my youngest off to college this year. So everybody's like, oh, you're an empty nester. And I went, have you not been a part of 2020? Uh, did that not happen for you? Because that whole paradigm of the empty nester and the kids going off to college, um, I'm not experiencing it in that way, the paradigm that we were used to. I still have two that live with me because they're living, they're going to colleges that are nearby. And then I have two that are at a, a state college that's only about an hour away. So they bounce back frequently and I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. I, sure. We spend so much time together. You know, I homeschool them and they're now in college and they're loving how their life is moving forward. And we're all just kind of grateful because we got them graduated during some very difficult times. <laughs> yeah. And hey, they act to attend college and that was up in the air for a bit of time, right? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, they could all four be sitting in their rooms attending college at the house. Which uh, is what they were terrified of because yeah. they had enough of that homeschooling thing. <laughs> I get it. I, I understand completely. I mean, my, my nephew missed, you know, a couple of years of elementary school. My nieces missed a couple of years of junior high and high school because they spent so much of them at home and they weren't homeschooling. So they, they missed out on something that they were, they, they thought they were going to be doing. Yes. And a lot of with the graduation ceremonies and stuff like that, it was amazing to watch how much yeah. effort was put in by different people to make sure these kids had those experiences. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we had a mostly virtual bat mitzvah a couple right. three, last year, and it's hard not to feel a little bit sad on stuff that they and they'll never know what they really missed out on. They'll never their lives won't be, you know, they won't see the difference. But it's a little bit like. Uh, anyway, not important. <laughs> there were a lot of changes. Rabbit holes to go down there. Yeah. So, yeah. so what's happening now for Janine? I'm in the process of interviewing 99 authors this year. And so for your people who are authors, I would like to interview you. I am running a summit called the Story Behind the Story Summit in September of this year of 2022. Then we will have a book that we will publish based on all those experiences and interviews by November of 2023. So if you want to be involved in that, then you have the opportunity to sign up for $99 and you are welcome to be a part of the 99 author project. So wow. that's what I'm doing. Now, what is the, uh, how are you limiting the kinds of authors or are you limiting the kinds of authors? The only limitation that we have on the authors is they have had to have a book out for longer than 18 months. So I am interested in people who have a marketing story to tell. So I would prefer authors who have published from 2019 and before because we had a huge sea change in 2020. Yeah. And because of that, uh, the way we go about marketing books and stuff is slightly different. However, there are many lessons that authors previous to you know, like 2019 and before who have published during that period of time, there is knowledge there that a lot of new authors are not aware of that they need to know because of the sea change in the publishing industry in the year 2000. Okay, very good. Yeah, you would know we <laughs> during the show, I've been doing show notes in the chat and, and I, the whole first part of your story, I was so, and I was on board with your story so much, I didn't take any notes. So <laughs> that's quite all right. This is one of the new things to me with the hosting a podcast is show mm -hmm. notes. And at some point, I'll have an assistant who does it for me, but yes. we're not there yet. One, um, one step at a time, all things grow. Exactly. So, is there anything that I should have asked Janine about that I didn't? You asked all the pertinent questions, uh, some last words of advice for people. If you have a story, if you have a message, if you feel you have a really in renewed sense of purpose that may be diametrically opposed to everything you've done, such as myself, I was a science and math uh, professor, and here I am teaching personal finance just because I was really good with it. I couldn't get published because uh, nobody wanted somebody like me. I didn't have an author platform. I didn't have anything except this book that I had written for my students. And I even had case studies and all that kind of stuff that they request now. But at the time, that was not something that was people were of interest to people, they thought. And so don't let what your background was or your past 
hold you back, even if what you want to do is a total sea change, if even if it's a massive change of direction, just continue to move forward with that. And if you have fear factor, if you have things that bring you great fear, then I highly recommend that you seek people out that can help you overcome them, whether it's a Toastmasters group or you find speaking opportunities at your local organization. Just get out there and start talking. Thank you, Janine. I do want to take a minute because I, I it didn't come up during. Tell us about the education you do around finance for, for kids and give us a little more about that. The best one is if you go to my website, the8gates.com, and you will have a pop-up that comes up and it's the 10 Steps to Abundance. And that is not only the online course I'm most proud of, it's free. And it also signs you up for my money tips that I send out. And you usually get an email from me probably once or twice a month. I don't spend a lot of time chatting it up with my email audience. You can be safe assured on that one. It's primarily there so that people can get a flavor of how I teach. And then every once in a while, I'll pop through, hey, we're starting new set of live courses. And then that's how you can sign up. But that's registration because I do those live. Uh, I found that people do much better if they have somebody holding them by the hand and they have to meet every week for eight weeks. They seem to do better that way. I get it. That's all accountability thing, right? It is. Yeah. Okay. Super. And thank you so much, Jean. What a, what a great story. And I had so much fun today. Uh, your story is, uh, inspirational and it's real and it's fun and not too crazy, right? <laughs> right. Right. Only in the moment. Thank you so much, Jim, for having me on the show. It's been a delight. I always love it when people offer their platform and let me speak with it. It's always so much fun for me, too. So thank you. You're welcome. And I will let you know when the episode is going to be broadcast. So you've that with your world as well. To our audience, the folks watching or listening, thank you for tuning in. I'm, I think this is one of the best episodes we've done so far. And we'll just keep striving to have more and more fascinating people on behind the lectern just for you. We'll see you next time. If you're in the top 25% of the fastest times. Wow, what a great speaker. Where did you find him? You know, I used to have trouble finding speakers. Then someone told me about speakercoop.com. Speakercoop.com? What's that? It's a website full of speakers who speak to groups like ours. How did you decide which speaker to choose? The website lets you search for speaker by topic. You can even type one search word in and find all the speakers who have that word in their topic. Then you can read the speaker's bio to see if they're a fit for your group. That sounds great. Yes, I'm using speakercoop.com to find all the speakers for our group this year. I've got to find a speaker for our luncheon next month. This will make it easy. I'm going to go to speakercoop.com. And over and over again... Thanks for joining us on Behind the Lectern. You can find an archive of our episodes at BehindTheLectern.com. You can also access useful speaking information at speakercoop.com forward slash education. Join us next time for another great speaker journey with an expert and our host, Jeff Klein. We'll catch you next time.